We're the Nada Grande Boys. I'm Rodney Wood. And I'm Kyle Jackson. Welcome to the Nada Grande Outdoors podcast where we hunt it forward. Welcome back to the Nada Grande Outdoors podcast. Kyle Jackson and Rodney Wood sitting here today with Katie... You're going to have to pronounce your last name. Is it De Lorenzo or De Lorenzo? De Lorenzo. De Lorenzo. Um, from the BHA. What's your official title? My official title is Southwest Chapter Coordinator for Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. We'll call you with BHA. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 For sure. Um, so, Katie, tell us um, tell us a little bit about yourself first and, uh, and your life in hunting and the outdoors. Sure. So I'm um, a New Mexico girl. I mean, I've lived here pretty much my entire life. I was born in Santa Fe and grew up in Alberta until I was 14 and then moved to the big city of Albuquerque. Um, my dad is a biologist, worked for the Forest Service for 34 years, and so we have pretty deep roots here in terms of um, his hunting heritage. I mean, he's been here since, you know, he was a young kid, and he's 70 now. Um, and then my sister, I have one sister, she's 11 years older than me, and she is a hunter, and she's a ranger on the Rio Grande National Forest in southern Colorado. And so, um, you know, my dad grew up um, in a family where, you know, they didn't have a lot of money. Um, he had a lot of brothers and sisters, kind of a Italian-Hispanic background. Um, my family came from Italy and basically farmed and kind of settled in southern Colorado and so our roots go back um, but they definitely depended on hunting for sustenance and um, I'm lucky that that got um, translated to me and my dad you know treated his girls kind of like he would have treated boys the joke is I was supposed to be a boy which (laughs) my name would have been Rocco Waldo after my two grandfathers so I'm really glad I wasn't a boy (laughs) Um, but yeah me and my sister were kind of raised up in that mindset of thinking about land management and wildlife and we've just kind of carried that into our careers and our life with our family today excellent i wish that's one thing that i wish you know i love the outdoors hunting fishing all of that stuff and don't know why for the life of me i didn't go into a field for that for my career but um what are you pointing at yeah, I'm good. Are you? I'm nailing it. Yeah, you're pegging out. <laughs> oh, that's good. I need to. Oh, okay. People usually say they can't hear me. That's true. Quit yelling at me, Kyle. Um, so but- I didn't either to start. I mean, I have an MBA from the University of New Mexico, and I worked at one of the top boutique ad agencies for five years. Um, and I always joke that I tried to fall far from the tree, and then I rolled back down to the base of it. There you go. Um, so, you know, I left advertising, and I saw this role with BHA was open. I was a volunteer. I was the co-chair here in New Mexico for BHA. And I was just on fire once I found him because it was this organization that was like, you know, really making moves and growing and aligned with my values. Um, and they gave me something to do. You know, kind of my experience before that, um, I had, you know, mostly sold raffle tickets. And so I could take that MBA experience and like put it to use for something I liked. And I applied for the job with BHA and got it, and I've been in this role about a year and a half. So very nice, very nice. Um, Kyle, say something. Something. <laughs> no. Um, so 
you said you, you kind of fell far from the tree and then rolled back to it. Did you did you hunt and fish growing up and then just drift away and come back, or how, how did that work? Yeah, I wasn't really into it that much when I was younger. I mean, I played soccer growing up, and I was really, really focused on that, especially as I got older and I was a teenager. I mean, to me, I'm like, why are we going out in the middle of nowhere? All my friends are going to these cool places and big cities. Um, and then I kind of had a reawakening like in my mid-twenties where I said, okay, I'm going to go on a hunt and like try this out a little bit more. I was kind of tired of soccer. Um, I was coaching at that point for like, I'd coached for 12 years and dove into the hunting piece. I mean, I had only killed a turkey at age 18, but I mean, we were around it. I just took mm-hmm. it for granted. My yeah. dad would bring animals home. We'd go fishing all the time, but I never found that passion for it until way later in life and I had a bighorn sheep hunt and my dad and I like hiked into the Latier wilderness alone and pulled the sheep off the mountain. I packed it out on my own back and I was like, oh, this is something I want to do for the rest of my life. Like I hadn't experienced that challenge of hunting Mm -hmm. um, and that solace. And once I kind of had that experience, I was like, this is what my dad has been trying to pass on to me my entire life. You know, right. I just figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So, what? Uh, you know, I, actually, that that it's funny because you find that happens a lot with many things in your life. That when you were younger, your parents, looking back, you can see your parents were trying to instill these values and trying to get you to understand uh, certain things about life and how stuff works and and. Uh, I think it's natural for for people to, or you know, teenagers, kids, teenagers, to just dismiss that. And generally, what happens is they tend to come back to it. You know, I look at things that my dad taught me whenever I was, or tried to teach me whenever I was younger, and now I'm coming back to it. And, um, and hopefully, with my young daughters, I'll be trying to pass that on. And I know it'll probably take that same cycle where. They're going to dismiss what I'm saying, but uh, uh, <clears throat> I told this to to my niece, uh, who's about to go to college. Uh, looking back, man, I wish I had taken advantage of the natural resources side and the hunting side of going to college in a different state. And looking back, I'm like, man, why didn't I do that? Obviously, your focuses are elsewhere. You know, yours was on soccer, mine was on school, and probably girls at the time, but. Uh, it's just funny how it all comes back. Oh, totally. I was just rebelling, like, yeah. as hard as possible. <laughs> what, and then what, I came back, like, a boomerang with, like, you know. Right? Well, it, it, so it's, it's interesting because, like, both of you, so, like, you, you know, you didn't hunt a ton when you were young, Kyle, and, and you missed that opportunity when yeah. you were up there in Idaho and Utah. And and you, you know, have been around hunting, but, but didn't, um, you know, start doing it a lot until recently. Um, I've hunted my whole life. I mean, I've been doing it as long as I can remember. So I don't have that. I miss the opportunity. But what I also don't have is that realization of how awesome this is, you know, because I've been doing it for so long. So I didn't have, I don't get that. So sometimes I'm a little jealous when people are like, get that realization of how cool this is. And man, I'm going to do this forever. Because I've, because you know, you've I been don't doing have this forever. <laughs> right, yeah, I've been doing this forever. You know, I, I did get it when we introduced Hunt It Forward, and last year we took our Hunt It Forward girls hunting. And that, to me, was just 
eye-opening awesome. Yeah. Well, it was I think, so cool I think, I think to you get probably that, say to feel you, that. You did have that because um, that's where that's where it kicked in. That's yeah. where that yeah. passion, you know, that quote-unquote new passion for hunting or renewed passion for hunting kicked in is you had to do something outside of yourself and realizing that, you know, you could pass that on to somebody else awaken that right right well i think one of the hardest things too is like you can't explain how cool it is no no like we try i write you know articles or blog posts or whatever and you try to tell someone how cool hunting is and that's like one of the main gaps in how we explain hunting to the non-hunting community because it's not possible it's that good that you you can't put it into words you can you know try with video and visuals but it's not possible the feeling you have when you're in the field and you see a sheep you know or see ibex butting heads it's just you can't put well, that there, well, there because, is and nothing because it's so individualized it's so yeah. it's such a personal experience for everybody everybody experiences it differently that's why we really enjoy having the guests on to tell us how yeah. they got into hunting and whether it was they grew up hunting or um, we're finding many of them are like you and I where they did a little bit of it whenever they were young got away from it came back to it um, and then we have some that are just now discovering it but it's so individualized how do you uh, it's almost like um, without opening too big a can of worms here it's almost like you know a religious experience that that's something that you can't convey to somebody no. it, it, words cannot convey what you yourself uh, experienced and what it means to you. Yeah. Hunt- their their view and, and their experience may be totally different. Yep. Hunters hunters can understand when another hunter is, is explaining what they go because they've experienced. But a non-hunter, there is no way to explain how exciting it is to have an elk bugling in your face at 20 yards. There's just no words that can convey that kind of awesome. Right. It just can't happen. Yeah. So... Um, personal outside of BHA, what are kind of your, you know, what's your future goals in hunting? Oh, I have a lot of them. That's a pretty nice. loaded question. Um, yeah, I set goals for myself every year and I work back from them. And I think that's part of the reason as a fairly new hunter, I mean, having, you know, only been really serious for like five years, that I've knocked some big ones off my list. And that's with the help of the support group that's my family. And they're yeah. all, you know, very experienced hunters and fishermen. So, um, you know, killing a bighorn sheep was one. Uh, the next year I got to hunt one with my bow. That was a really cool experience. Um, I got my first archery elk last year. That was a huge goal. Like, basically, you know, 2018 was solely focused on killing an elk with my bow. Um, in the future, um, I think it's solo hunts that I, I love being with my family, but I feel like I just need to prove it to myself that, you know, I can go and be effective right. on my own. Um, that'd probably, you know, look like a deer or an antelope hunt um, in, in a place where I know I can pack it out by myself. Um, gosh. Um, I, think, and I think that's a really good il- illustration of what we were just talking about in, in your individualized goals. Roddy and I, pretty much have no desire to do so because we love hunting together so much you know it's it's just crazy so we've we've got our hunting group it's me and kyle and didon and we hunt together and pretty much really don't want to ever let anybody hunt with us on our hunts and don't really want to hunt much unless it's at least two of us together you know it's just and that's all preference and you know we we do 
we do preach, you know, let people have their preferences because hunting can be experienced in so many different ways. Yeah. So. I love being with my family. I mean, my sister, my niece, my nephew, my brother-in-law, my fiance, my mom, my dad, we hunt and we all hunt together. And even um, last year, one of my cousins hunted with me for 10 days and it was kind of like the first time the next generation was out there without our dads. It was me and my cousin Davey and we were just you know, running around trying to get me a mule deer. Um, but I think for me, you know, I get asked a lot being a female and then having the Instagram handle of Huntress, like, are you the real deal? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't feel like that solo hunt is for anybody else. I just feel like for me, it's something I need to do. Yeah, no, and honestly, I, I, that I can absolutely see that for sure. It's just getting so annoying. So, but I feel like for me personally, I just want to do one hunt where I'm like, boom, I did it. Here's my animal. I might feel like that will help solidify me as a hunter. Um, and then a few other ones would be calling a bull elk in. been practicing my bugling, but last nice. year my fiancé called my bull in. Um, you know, calling a turkey in. My dad is really amazing at turkey heading, so I've always wanted to do my own. But then every time we're together, it's kind of like our tag team. It's a thing we do together. Like, he calls them in and I kill them. So, <laughs> there you go. You know, that's just special right now. Um, so maybe someday. Um, and then... I think bow hunting right now, I just want to do everything with a bow. I have my first bear hunt this fall, and I want to get one with a bow. There you go. so, you know, I have real specific goals I make at the beginning of the year, and then I back those out so that I can be training for them basically all year long, whether it's my draw weight or, you know, learning a new area, learning a new species. So I, I think that's an important thing to do. Not everyone has to put that pressure on themselves, but that's the only way I can make my life work and kind of get to where I want to be. Right. And I never thought it would even be possible to kill an elk with my bow. Like, when I did it, I was like, oh, my God, it worked, right? But it was, like, this long journey of figuring out how to elk hunt. I mean, just because my family hunts doesn't mean I know what I'm doing. Yeah, you know? there's <laughs> there's all kinds of – I mean, my my family's, you know, huge in hunting. We've hunted every year since I can remember. Um, and, and you're absolutely right. Uh, I've got a cousin that – kills monster mule deer and he's killed a ton of them all on public land and all right off of his stinking four-wheeler and it just it drives me crazy um but it's his process and it works for him and that's what he loves to do and man i wish i got the opportunity to do that but for me you know the way he does it um it wouldn't bring any satisfaction for me so um, like you're talking about with your bow, I, for me it doesn't necessarily have to be a bow. Muzzleloader is just fine. Last year I killed my deer at, at 480 yards, and it meant nothing to me. It was so anticlimactic. Just I was like, eh. Yeah. You know, and it was cool because it, my buddy Dion. It was the first animal that we had taken while we were together in the field. Um, so that was cool, but I didn't have that interaction i didn't get inside that deer's space and i like that you know so that's so i I definitely understand what you're talking about with the with the bow um to me it's not necessarily the taking it with the bow but just what it means to what you have done to be able to take it with the bow you know being able to get in there that close so you've got to be sneaky you've got to have scent control um, you got to have control over your emotions and your in your body to be able to do that, and then you have to make that shot uh, with the bow. So, it, 
really cool hunt. There's so I mean, and goals don't have to be you know for me killing a 200 inch mule deer. I mean that'd be super cool. Don't mm-hmm. get me wrong, but like um, goals I incorporate are where I do something or how I do something. Yes. Like you know I have an idea. Like I want to go catch a muskie in a kayak at Blue Water, and that's like this go. thing that I come up with, and it's important to me because I learn more through that process and doing things in a certain way or a certain place. Um, so yeah, I think it doesn't always have to be what we think of as like, you know, this big hairy goal is killing a monster, this or a trophy that it's like, I want to kill my first year with a boat. Boom. That's my goal. Then maybe later that will change. Well, and I think, um, the other thing to kind of mention here is, is, you know, for the longest time, and I don't know if, if if you watched many hunting shows growing up or anything like that, but for the longest time, all the hunting shows out there were big animals. That's that's all it was about, who could kill the biggest. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's been a little bit of a turn in the corner, a little bit of change in the conversation about what is a trophy animal. And, you know, for us, that's you know, getting an animal is a trophy. Obviously, we still want to get a big one. Uh, just because that's part of the tradition mm. of hunting, but my freezer is my trophy yeah, case. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> For the most part, that's that's what it is. The freezer is your trophy case, and I think uh, changing changing that conversation to exactly what you were talking about uh, to experiences. Yeah. Uh, rather than did you get one? Did you not get one? You know, I I drew the first time I put in, I drew the once in a lifetime Vibadol hunt with my bow, uh, with a bow. I actually had to borrow a bow because I hadn't even bought one at the point, at one time. But I went with my brothers. And we packed in, you know, um, and set camp, and we hunted, and I didn't even get one. But it is, it is one of my favorite hunts to this day because of the experience that we had. Yeah. And that was the first time that I've, you know, I, up to, up until that point, I had only you know, hunted muzzleloader um, or rifle for elk. And that was the first time I got to got to experience that bull coming in to the call and just charging in. You know, the first evening where we were there, we decided that my uh, our buddy was going to get to shoot because he had to leave early from the hunt. And we called in a bull, and he came, and we were all out kind of in the open, lined up in a in a line. And that bull came within 20 yards, and he shot him on a walk. And we got to, and he jumped, and he ran about 20 yards, and we got to watch him stand there and bleed out and, and expire. And just that, that, that's what hooked me on bow hunting, first off. But uh, to have that experience with those people in that place was just amazing. Yeah. yeah. And I would just say, I think sometimes there's like a hierarchy or a perceived hierarchy with like bow hunting versus muzzleloader versus rifle. And like I talk about bow hunting because it's now what I love to do. But I wouldn't be a bow hunter without having been on a rifle hunt, yeah. without having been on a muzzleloader hunt, because that's where I started and having that like early success. Mm-hmm. You know, my first three hunts were private land hunts. So mm-hmm. I work for an organization that's all about public land advocacy, yes, but totally understand the meaningful benefit of having a place where it's a little bit easier to hunt because I got success and I got to experience it. And if it would have been like, you know, years and years for me to get my first animal, I mean, it, it might have been a, a longer time before I realized how much I liked it. So even for someone like me that was immersed with their whole life, I mean, I got, you know, some tags right. given to me by a generous landowner and I had those experiences and now I'm a public land bow hunter. So it's no. been an evolution. It's not like 
you know, I just decided to kill everything on public land with a bow in my hand. So I think that's just important to note. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like you said about private land, um, we've done our, I've done my fair share of hunting on private land and, you know, we do the hunt it forward program and without private landowners donating private land tags, we would not have been able to introduce those people to hunting. So yeah, they definitely play a role, uh, and that was a, that, a huge part in getting getting our hunt it forward candidates um, an opportunity to go hunting. So uh, we just did a Barbary hunt. Um, there's a podcast going to come out about it pretty quick. Uh, kind of an impromptu Barbary hunt. We weren't even intending to go Barbary hunting, and the guy was like, you know, hey, I got to go into town, but you guys can go over there into that pasture and hunt some Barbary. Okay, sweet, <laughs> and, and we did, and Kyle Kyle got a, a really nice ram. Um, so so yeah, um, I'm not above hunting on private property anyway. But you can still make an experience out of it, and um, like like we t- already talked about. However, you we, we poke fun at Deedon because he does a lot of uh, blind hunting and tree stand hunting in Texas. Um, but you know that's hunting; it's outdoors, and if that's the way you like to do it more power to you yeah and people just need to understand it's like all about context like what can you do and how you yes. do it um you know in texas you might have to be in a blind and so yes. we kind of poo-poo those hunters that sit in a blind and think oh, i can never do that that's so boring but i try not to judge until i experience that hunt yes um, and kind of add like all the little you know tidbits you learn you add that to how you think about stuff and then you're a more educated hunter and then you can say well i know some people like to do that i don't really like to do that right yeah, and, yeah. but i think until you experience it like we shouldn't just be so snobby no <laughs> yeah no, I mean, you're 100 percent right yeah. the, the the like i said the the i killed my deer at 480 yards um and i had a feeling that i wouldn't like that that i wouldn't like shooting an animal at that distance um and my my buddy didon he loves long-range shooting he loves hunting long range. He also loves hunting short range with muzzleloaders, and you know, we, no do good prim- yeah. <laughs> we do some primitive muzzleloader hunting and and archery hunting. Um, and he loves that stuff, but he also loves the long range. And I give him crap about it, but not seriously. I'm not going to ever tell him, you know, you shouldn't do that because it's unethical or anything like that. I tried it. I didn't like it. It's not for me. I'll never yeah. do it again. The line is ethics, right? Yeah. The line is where you. So the, the line is ethics, on. but you also have to kind of view it as. So different areas have different ethics. Yes, and different and traditions, so like baiting bears, yeah, is yeah. a good yeah. example, it's right? A, that's like perfect, a perfect example. example. So you know, I I don't feel like I would want to kill a bear over bait, but I read an argument recently where it said, well, you know, if there's so much vegetation that if we didn't bait bears, we could never even find them to help exactly. control the population. And yeah. it's what we have to do. Yeah. So, so regional ethics may be the maybe the term that kind of fits there. But yeah, it's, it's different different areas require different standards. Yep. Yeah, and it's um, we out here in in the West have a certain way that we hunt because the land dictates that we hunt that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, we can't say well those those tree stand hunters in, in the Midwest and, and the eastern part of the states, they're a bunch of pansies because they don't get out and hike and do all that. But we can't do that because uh, that that's the way the they land the dictates that they hunt that yeah. way back there, the land and, and the amount of hunters that they have in the woods and, and safety and all that stuff. And so, again, that's something that we've always talked about is 
we've got we've got to try to stop uh, nitpicking other hunters for yeah. what they do and just say, hey, you're a hunter, you like to do that, cool, man. Uh, yeah. you know, welcome to the club. Welcome to the club. And I think that's great. Yeah, I think the point for me is if I feel like it crosses an ethical line, exactly. then I might say, okay, let's have that conversation. But, you know, that's why each state has their game agencies and they have manner and method rules. Yep. Um, you know, BHA really chimed in on the ones that were um, developed last year. Mm-hmm. And that's why we have them. And yep. that's a huge challenge for game agencies moving forward with all the technology and you know, what those ethics and those methods look like moving forward. Right. But as long as, like, we're having the conversation, you're right, we shouldn't um, hate on, you know, how people do things just for the sake of, of hating on it. No. Like, it needs to be wrong or right, but right. that's a, you know, further delineation. With with the BHA, you said you um, cover the Southwest? Yeah. So you probably deal with that because you deal with not only different regions in the state, but other states, correct? Yes, so I have... A really interesting spread of states. I have Utah, New Mexico, Texas, and Arizona. And so um, I have, you know, some of the most challenging states when it comes to public land um, access. Um, You know, they all kind of have their different flavor um, Mm -hmm. and different challenges, of course, in each. And, yeah, I'm giving a really well-rounded perspective on a bunch of different issues because um, they're very different. They have, you know, Texas obviously very different from New Mexico in terms of just the amount of public land. Um, Mm -hmm. But what people don't understand is is in those states where you have the most tension, like Utah, with the, you know, movement essentially to transfer um, federally managed lands to the state. It's like the epicenter, right, of the transfer movement. Um, Or a place like Texas where you have very limited public land um, that those people are the most passionate about fighting for um, public land and they understand what they stand to lose. And yeah. so those are actually my largest and fastest growing chapters right now. How do you, how do you keep that separate? Um, like different, you know, like we were talking about ethics or morals or, or hunting um, strategies, if you will. How do you keep that separate from Arizona to New Mexico or New Mexico to Texas? I mean, that's got to be tough kind of separating that, doesn't it? Well, you know, we don't deal with... Um, like methods of take or anything a lot. Um, what So BHA has three buckets. So one is like access and opportunity that we want to, you know, maintain and enhance the access that mm-hmm. we do have. Um, the second is making sure the habitat's great when we get there. You know, we want to conserve on a large scale. Um, and then the third is um, basically maintaining those fair chase traditions. And so the fair chase is probably the one um, that's more on the periphery of what we do. You know, the majority of the time we are defending public land um, access and use. Um, But we have things like high fence hunting. And the line is usually pretty clearly black and white. I mean, you can have BHAers from all across North America, and we're even expanding into Canada now. And we know, you know, what our positions are. Um, If... If there is um, one position that we're going to come out and say publicly, it's going to apply to, you know, Canada, to Maine, to New Mexico. It's going to be like a pretty clear line. Um, And so I think that hasn't been, you know, a huge challenge for the most part because BHAers tend to have really similar core values and are 
organizations challenge moving forward, we're growing rapidly and we have to make sure everyone is on the same page before we go and say publicly, here's our... I was going to say that's that's got to be fairly difficult because, uh, you know, I'm sure as with many organizations across that large span of area, um, you get strong personalities who have very uh, opinionated viewpoints on specifics and I would think that with BHA having to or and covering and and um, dealing with so many different variables your your viewpoints are going to be fairly I'm not going to say general but have to be an across the board type of issue rather than whether you're baiting bears in Montana or it's spot and stock in New Mexico type of Totally, totally. So that's a challenge of BHA and also our greatest strength is that diversity of opinion across North America. And then we get all those people together and we work through those statements during our policy development process. And we have a really um, well-educated North American board that then helps steer that ship. And I think the huge opportunity there is for BHA to be thought leaders in the world of conservation and, you know, hunting ethics. And so, yeah, it's a huge challenge, but I mean, it's one we happily take on because as we gain prominence, you know, our voice grows louder and we feel like we can do a pretty dang good job of helping people define what hunting looks like now and how can we best carry it into the future when we're a growing, you know, minority of the population. Very cool. So what are... So what do you do specifically with the BHA here as it pertains to your region? So everything almost. So I came from advertising and, you know, had clients in a multitude of different um, business sectors from death care to jewelry. Um, And I'm kind of taking that model and I'm like a mini ad agency for the Southwest. So for each state chapter, um, you know, we just have one chapter in each state and they have counterparts um, basically you know, regional committees all around mm-hmm. the state, um, but just one state chapter. And so I'm tasked with supporting them in anything they want to do. So it's very entrepreneurial. It's almost like a startup. Um, we're building this from the ground up. And so there's not a lot of bureaucracy. So I'm figuring out the business side of it and, you know, the day-to-day, how we make stuff work um, in addition to the high-level strategy. So um, I help with putting on events, um, promotion, um, the strategy and planning for the year, uh, policy statements and direction. So basically all of it. I am the liaison between our headquarters in Missoula and all of my state chapters. And a lot of times they come to me and they want to do something new. And my job is to figure out how to do it to enable them to do what they see as being most effective in their neck of the woods. Very good. No wonder it took us so long to be able to tie you down to get you on this podcast. Yeah. You're busy. <laughs> So what kind of goals do does the BHA have you know here in here in New Mexico specifically right now what's what's uh, what are y'all looking at here So you know we have a few um, kind of baseline goals one is reaching 500 members we are really close to being there um, we have been around for I don't know maybe four years or so and started with a handful of people and now we've seen that membership grow and it's a paid membership and so these are people that are giving us their money you know $25 annual membership or 35 bucks for a family year after year um, so that's just a you know paper goal that we want to reach a certain number so that our clout um, and presence can continue to grow as a key stakeholder um, with the game commission and other entities of course um, then we have um, you know kind of fluffier goals like 
um, spreading awareness for hunting and kind of speaking to uh, the non-hunting community and BHA really tries to reach across the aisle and that freaks some people out, right? But at a national or North American level, we have worked with Patagonia and something Land Tani, our CEO, always says is, you know, a lot of these partners, um, we, we agree with 80% of the time and 20% of the stuff, you know, maybe we don't line up with. Um, but I think that intersection of um, the outdoor community as a whole and then hunters is really important. And so BHA wants to be the group that helps reach across the aisle and bring new people into hunting or expand their understanding of what we do in our lifestyle. Um, and then I would say, you know, you have some very specific goals that are related to our mission. Um, one is, you know, keeping and enhancing access. So stream access is an important issue for us. Um, we have commented to the new game commission about a variety of other issues as well. Um, you know, we would like to see them uh, basically revisit the trapping regulations so that we can figure out a good way forward there. Um, a lot of people don't understand that BHA does um, see trapping as a really valuable management tool. And so we do defend trappers. Um, unfortunately, unfortunately, during the last legisl legislative session, we only had one policy guy working on all of these bills that we were trying to comment on. And so we just didn't have the bandwidth to you know, come out and put a lot of weight behind that. And so that's an important one for us is in these um, moments where you have you know, two sides with their heels dug in, I think BHA could come in and help um, guide that conversation to a better place with a better outcome, you know, there are solutions there. It's just a matter of finding them. Yeah. Um, so we would like to see trapping evolve to a point where maybe uh, it's a less arduous conversation on both sides. <laughs> yeah. um, and then some of our other issues are just, you know, E plus, we've pushed back a little bit on how landowners are compensated for um, their access. Um, and gosh, I don't know what else we have. Those are some of the big hairy ones. Um, but overall, we are, you know, we're keeping an eye on the state, local, mm -hmm. and federal government. So if someone in Chavez County calls us and says, hey, they're going to put in an application to close a road, um, we're going to try to jump on that. And our board just expanded from three to 15 people so that we can do a better job of seeing what's happening on a local level and taking action and having more bandwidth at a state level. And those are all volunteer positions, correct? They're all volunteer. And so I'm the only paid staff person covering four states. And so everything we do is really volunteer driven. We are an advocacy organization. So we basically educate our membership with what we think is right and try to give them all the facts and then depend on them to make their voices heard and play a part in the political process because that's how we implement policy change. Gotcha. There's, you mentioned, so a few things that you mentioned in there, one stream access, one the E-plus system, um, and then the other one is road closures. I know that we've dealt with that in Chavez County quite a bit here recently um, because they've closed a lot of roads or tried to close a lot of roads that would um, uh, cut off access to a lot of public land. Uh, and that is a big deal. Uh, access to public land, it's a fight that I don't think is ever going to go away. We'll be able to fight that one for a long time, unfortunately. Um, talk about the the stream access and the, the BHA position on that 
and and how that affects people and and what what kind of that that uh, um, fight, if you will, entails from both sides. Sure. So first, I'm not going to use the word fight. Sure, sure. <laughs> Although we say fight for public access quite a lot. Um, you know, BHA's position is pretty clear on stream access. We want, um, you know, a, a young mom has her son and he wants to go fishing. New Mexico water is very limited. Mm-hmm. And let's say, you know, there's a stream behind their house where he can enter the water and exit the water on public land, but fish a stretch that's private. Mm-hmm. Our core belief is that that little kid should be able to go and recreate in New Mexico state water. Um, and that is kind of at the core of our position and what we're fighting for. Um, some support points for that is that, you know, it's in the New Mexico state constitution. Um, an attorney general has backed that up in a decision. And then some I guess the tides kind of turned to where a 2015 stream access law was passed and now the game commission is enforcing certifications for certain stretches to be certified Mm non-navigable. And we um, have just pushed the the game commission rescind um, that enforcement of the law. We love to see that law changed at a legislative level. And we, you know, think the average New Mexican should be able to go and use those stretches of private water as long as they remain in the stream bed, right? And so... Um, now, are we talking walking up the stream or, or um, in, a, in a craft? Yeah, in New Mexico, it's most often going to be walking um, mm-hmm. because, you know, we have a lot of skinny water. Um, but the main points on the flip side of that is... If we are going to ask for that access, we need to be very responsible users of those waterways. So, you know, we know private landowners don't just want people running all over their property or that being a potential door for, you know, other infractions that the game department then has to keep up with. And so um, how people use that access would be critically important in addition to how they treat the resource. Um, you know, we, we can't ask for this and then be throwing trash in the stream or, um, you know, basically abusing the land. So, but we, we have a core belief that is, you know, American. We live in the greatest country in the world mm-hmm. and it's American to have access to our land and our, and our water. Um, and for me, that is really powerful because I think about my dad you know, growing up and they were so poor and if they did not have access to public hunting ground, there were probably a lot of nights they would have been hungry. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's very real for me and I think a lot of people don't view it from that perspective. They think um, they just want more and more and more. They want to be able to go everywhere. Um, but to me, it's like a very fundamental fundamental belief that, you know, it's our state water and we should have access to it. Yeah. So I was researching this, um, the, the navigable and non-navigable waterways, and, and I don't know if I've you know, done the research correct or not, but so what I read up in the definition of, of navigable waterways is that navigable and non-navigable waterways are determined at the federal level rather than the state level. Is that a position that the BHA has looked at? Um, I don't think in New Mexico's case that whether it's navigable or non-navigable is supposed to be a foundational point. Um, In the conversations I've had with people, they basically said that is a key piece of um, water access arguments in other states. And I'm not remembering like the exact um, document to cite, 
but I don't think that that's supposed to be a hinge point for gotcha. access here. So, so, so the BHA's position is basically that navigable or non-navigable, we should have the right to go up the streams. Yes. Gotcha. I mean, when we became went from a territory to a state, it's in there, and I believe the word recreation is actually yeah. used. Yeah. So what about the E plus? What is it? What is the position on the the um, the BHA for the E plus? So BHA believes in the North American model, and with that, we believe that animals, wildlife, are held in public trust, and we feel like the existing E plus system is in violation of the North American model, which is the foundation of everything we really believe in when it comes to wildlife mm-hmm. management, um, and that. You know, too many tags are going to private landowners, and it's not that we are denying the meaningful benefit that private landowners provide, um, especially as we're talking about, you know, forage or migration and allowing animals um, places of respite where they can get away from all the public um, and all of the roads. But we feel like they should be compensated in another way other than tags. Um, We feel like. Um, you know, we certainly don't want to handicap our public landowners from doing great conservation work or feeling like those elk are important um, to the landscape. However, we like to see them compensated in a different way. And we don't know what, what the perfect system is. We haven't figured that out, but we hope through having these conversations, we can start to come to a better understanding of what a better system might look like. Gotcha. So when you talk about the E plus, you know, that, so the e, we did a lot of coverage on the E plus last year and we really, we kind of got on to New Mexico hunters because, so we went to all the meetings. Uh, we went to the private land meetings um, where, where the Department of Game and Fish was holding meetings for the private landowners to come and talk about um, the, the new E plus system that they were putting in place. And then they had the public meetings for, for the hunters, for the, for the public landowners to come and give their comments. And so I went to several of the E-plus meetings for the private landowners. Every one of these meetings was full, standing room only, full of private landowners. At the public meetings, nobody was there. Yep. And um, the... What really frustrated me is, you know, there were the people that were wanting these rights or that were, you know, concerned about private landowners getting more tags and public landowners weren't taking the time to go out there and let their voices be heard. So frustrating. Yeah. And I really, we really kind of pushed and got on to the public landowners for doing that because the private landowners with their turnout are going to get what they want because they're the ones there speaking their opinions and, and the public landowners didn't show up. Well, thanks for lighting fire under the public land hunters' butts. Um, there's a few factors at play there, right? So one is game commission meetings being held at times when it's real hard for the average hunter to get off work and attend. I can tell you before I had this full-time role with BHA, there was no way I could take off you know, from my job at the ad agency to go spend half a day in a game mm-hmm. commission meeting. Um, the other piece I would argue is at play there is the landowners have a lot to, to lose. Um, yeah. And that's a key part, you know, of their management of their ranch or their income. And a lot of the public land hunters don't understand what they don't have. 
because this is the way it's already always been. Mm -hmm. They don't understand how tags are broken out. And so before we have any intelligent conversations or get public landowners to the table, we have to do a good job of educating people. And that's what I think some of these um, organizations are starting to try to do is to tell people, here's you know, what we perceive as a, as a problem and let's start that conversation. Because yeah. the bottom line is a lot of public land hunters, they don't even know. They don't they know don't. how the tags break down. They don't know how, um, you know, how they're being allocated or how the process works. And so just starting there with education and then hopefully we can move to having some intelligent conversations with both sides. Right. Um, but I, I think it's important to note that, you know, BHA values private landowner rights and yeah. understand it is critically important, especially as we're talking about migration. You know, migration is a super hot topic right now. Yeah. And that's yes. something where we're, you know, we know they are a critical part of the landscape. Um, my brother-in-law manages a private ranch and we have these conversations yeah. and it's important to have an even keeled perspective. I, you know, I don't think public land hunters um, could do what they do without the private ranches. No, they, they they definitely you know each each has its position and each has its um, its value yeah and now correct me if I'm wrong Arizona is a little different in their system right they don't they don't have the private land tags per se right they just have the public draw system and then if you want to go hunt on the private land you you have to I'm work that out with familiar. the private landowner I'm not super familiar. I know Montana is that way. I'm pretty like sure they don't give any landowner tags yeah, or anything like that. I'm pretty sure Arizona's the same. I could be wrong, um, but I think they're the same. I don't, I don't think that there's any system in place for private land hunting. If you draw a tag and you want to go hunt on private land, I think you have to work that out yourself. I don't think the private land owners. I want to have say a Arizona system. doesn't have set asides in the same yeah. way um, that we do, and yeah, I think they're they're kind of upheld as like the gold standard for what we like to see someday. Um, but I'm not familiar with like all of the inner workings. So a question for you, because I can, this is a, a frustration that, that I have, and it happens a lot in, in government, is that they, you know, someone will say, well, this system's not working, but not have a suggestion for how to get it working. And so um, is, is BHA working on that? Because to, to oppose the system as it is without some sort of alternative seems like not not to say that you know people don't do it all the time and um but it is is the goal just to start the conversation or or what what's the dynamic yeah we have some suggestions i mean uh so the guys that have really worked on this so obviously in my position as a regional person i kind of dabble in these issues where they are full in like they have committed, you know, the past decade to thinking through this and what it might look like. So they certainly have recommendations. I mean, we just sent um, this letter here to the game commission and to the governor, and it has specific areas where we think it could improve and suggestions as to what that might look like. And so, um, you know, consider other forms of compensation rather than the elk licenses themselves. Um, we'd like to see them end the practice of the unit-wide authorizations. Like we think if, you know, a landowner is receiving compensation um, for a tag, they should be, the hunter should be restricted to hunting that private land, not a unit-wide tag where they're hunting public. Um, The other one, they kind of moved this year with all the E-plus changes to just tighten up 
um, their system of how um, they're ranking these ranches and their benefit, right? Because there were some big holes in people breaking up their land into yeah. smaller no, that, units. And, that, and that's absolutely right. Yeah, that that um, I was absolutely happy to see them tighten that up and, and get a little bit more standardized on that. Um, yeah, and what qualifies? Yeah, so they're tightening it up, but we, we like to see a minimum ranch size. That, yeah, I, I'm, I'm an advocate of that. I, I hate, like, the unit-wide. If you've got 10 acres and now you're a unit-wide ranch and you can get a tag and it be a unit-wide tag. And, sure, I can hunt your 10 acres now, but, you know, the trade-off does seem a little unfair. But I think I think that's what, you know, like Kyle and I, we, we are, there's a lot of things that private landowners do that, that we think is wrong. And there's a lot of things that public landowners do to private lands that is absolutely wrong. And um, we've been advocates since we started Nada Grande to, to find ways to bridge that gap that, is, that has come between private landowners and public landowners. So we're huge advocates for calling out public hunters when they trash private land when they cut fences, when they leave gates open. You know, these are some of the main things that private landowners don't like about public land hunters when they come onto private land. But then we're also advocates for, you know, private landowners quit crying when we hop from corner to corner on public lands. You know, um, corner crossing being a huge issue for for access. Um, You know, and and private landowners are also... Um, punishing the masses for the sins of a few because it's not everybody that leaves gates open it's a, it's a few jackasses yeah. pardon my french but um but that you know that's the fact and so we're trying to us personally we're trying to find ways to kind of bridge that gap you know and that that bridge that has been created because used to way back when it wasn't as big of an issue private landowners you know didn't have as big of a problem and I, I understand money comes into play because hunting has now become a huge money yep. business um, as opposed to what it was 30 years ago. Um, it, it's a hard fight because it's, it's, it's um, not something – there's not a real clear path forward. you know. And there's a lot of things that we fight for where we say, you know, even if it's not that big of a deal, we got to fight for it because give them an inch and they take a mile. Yep. You know, but then also you got to find ways to work with organizations, private land, you know, working with public land and public land working with private land. So it, it's a hard, hard concept. So you made made the you know the suggestion that you do find a different uh, a different way to compensate them. Has there been any exploration in in that realm, like what that would look like? Because. Um, you know, right now that that tends to be a fairly significant in, income for those for those ranchers, for those landowners. And you talk about taking that away, and boy, that that riles the masses. You know, that gets them out in force. And so, um, has have you guys gone that far? Or haven't got to that quite yet? Well, you know, I mean, the easiest one is money, right? Okay. But in terms of the logistics of what that would look like. You know, we, we haven't gone down that rabbit hole. We want the new game commission to realize this is a problem. So hopefully we can start having those conversations. And we have experts. You know, we have some of our board members or past board members that know all the 10 alternatives and could sit in a room with the right people and educate them and also walk through 
you know, what different systems might look like. There is a way forward. We just have to be willing to talk about it. I mean, I think one of the most detrimental mindsets that hunters um, or the hunting community as a whole could have is like digging our heels in and thinking that things are going to stay the way they're going to stay. They're not. Um, But I see BHA as a voice for the future. You know, I I hate to use the word progressive because it feels dirty. (laughs) But the point is... um, to carry our heritage into the future and do it in a in a way where we can start working together for the maximum benefit of everybody. I mean, we have to be willing to have tough conversations and to work through it in a way um, that is mindful of everyone's um, you know wants and needs. So, do you guys have um, you know when you, when you're having sitting down and having those conversations about? Uh, what the system needs to go to or, or ideas about where that system needs to go. Are you including the private landowners in those conversations? Because it would seem like that would be really uh, kind of key to have some, some private landowners with that um, with that different viewpoint to kind of temper some of the some of the ideas and some of the directions that, that would go. Uh, having having dealt with this personally, I know that you start talking about taking away landowner tags and all of a sudden everybody says, well, guess what? You're going to get every stinking animal off of my place. Yep, yep. I mean, it's a divisive conversation and I think policy really... cannot be made in a vacuum, right? Right. So most of our, our conversations up to this point have been internal with our board figuring out how to bring this issue to the forefront of the conversation. Um, but I can tell you, like, you know, I'm having those conversations with my brother-in-law and we're pushing back on each other and he's giving me new information. Mm -hmm. And I would say there are um, private landowners um, and their representatives that are very forward thinking and very willing to talk about what certain solutions might look like. Um, You know, I've met a few that I'm just blown away by their professionalism and um, their knowledge about a lot of these subjects. So you just have to find the right people. Mm -hmm. Um, There is a lot of money involved and the bottom line, which I can say this definitively, is that elk that you're getting $16,000 for is not your elk. It is the Correct. public's elk. And that's where um, I think it comes back to a really foundational place that's really black and white for me. That, you know, some little 16-year-old uh, girl that drew the tag owns that elk. That is a public trust, a public resource. And just because you've been used to getting that money doesn't mean um, that it should be that way forever. Just because it's been done doesn't mean there's no room for improvement. And we firmly believe that, you know, the average hunter should have access to the animals that are public resource. Um, now, if, you know, the ranch owners um, doing habitat improvement and really being a good steward of the land, you know, we also want to see them compensated, just not with that little girl's tag. It, would, would that be a goal is to... Um increase tags on public land oh you know i mean we don't typically speak to management goals i mean we were certainly disappointed in um looking at the e-plus system last year that not a single more tag went into the public draw right basically all they did last year and it's a four-year cycle of looking at the rule is they said we need to tighten up our um requirements for what these ranches look like as kind of a first step to adding some integrity to the system because as we already mentioned you know people are breaking their land up into smaller pieces you could have a piece of empty dirt that would you know maybe they were wanting to try to get a tag for that wasn't really providing any benefit so in theory yes 
but it all goes back to scientific management. So if the biologists say, you know, there's no more tags or there's even less tags, we're never going to push back on that. But if we feel like tags are, you know, going to one user group over public land hunters, yes, then we're going to yeah. push. So, because currently, you know, it's it's divided. So, and just to use round numbers to make the math easy, if you've got, you know, 10,000 acres in a unit and they're going to give um, uh, 500 tags in that unit and 5,000 of those 10,000 acres is public and 5,000 of those 10,000 acres is private, then they take those um, 500 tags and 250 go to public and 250 go to private. And I think some of the fears, you know, that I personally have is if they shift that tag number to the public, but those people are now all hunting on the public, you're going to decrease public herds and there and thereby um, decrease um, the the value of the hunting on yeah, the you're public gonna, land. Yeah, we so, have so th- that's there's, something there's, we've addressed. Yeah. So the list I'm giving you is not exhaustive, but one sure. recommendation is to require participate, participating E-plus ranches to accept a number of public draw hunters on their land in exchange for this um, the license authorizations they receive. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a ton of... Which which is interesting because that's the antelope system that we had and went and we got away rid of it. from. And we got rid of it, yeah. And so... Uh, yeah, that's that's actually really interesting because I had always thought that I'm like, well, we're doing this for antelope. Why aren't we doing? This and it for worked it? so well, and we we had such a good we've we've got we've yeah. grown such a great great antelope herd. There's, there's probably a whole lot of this that we could. There is. Oh, we, we, could we could go all day. We probably we probably ought not to. I would yeah. actually yeah. would love to continue this conversation. The conversation uh, afterwards because this the, is yeah the but conversation. I'll just make the point yeah. that our problem, um, you know, our issue is with. Not that we need more tags. It's just where are those tags going? Yeah. We firmly believe that, you know, they are the public, they're in the public trust. They are the property of the residents as a whole of the state of New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And there's tons of idiosyncrasies to this issue um, that I'm not covering yeah. well because we can't in, you know, such a short oh, time period. No, no. You, you couldn't in a week. Yeah, but it as long so as we much. start the conversation yeah. and people are thinking about it, um, we can find a better way forward. I'm completely confident in that, especially yeah. with the new commission who I feel like, um, you know, they're willing to um, hopefully hear a diverse array of opinions and be yeah. a bit more transparent than the groups that we've seen in the past. And, and of yeah. course, that's always that's always a complication because uh, with every new governor, you have a chance of getting a new commission, which usually happens, especially if they switch parties. Yeah. And with, with even within... A governor's tenure, you could have a, a almost 100%. It's not likely, but you could have a 100% changeover in game commission. And that's extremely hard to... It, it, it's an environment in which it's really hard to get stuff done. Absolutely, yeah. 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 I mean, you wipe them out. It's like you exterminate. You yeah. Know, this body gets running and functioning, and then we, you know, yeah. exterminate it. So you you fresh. mentioned kind of the game commission legislation that came up this last legislative session. Were you guys for that? Where where this the uh, they talked about the different the differing um, system of putting game commissioners in or appointing game commissioners. Do you, do you remember that legislation? Yes, we opposed that. You opposed that. And, and why did you oppose that? We opposed it because there were a few key pieces that we really liked. Um, one being uh, that the governor can't just excuse someone for no reason. Mm-hmm. Um, because obviously if 
we have a game commissioner that's not following in line with that governor's policy, they could just be excused. Mm -hmm. um, so we thought for checks and balances that is a really important change. Um, another one I think was them being able to receive gifts or some compensation. Um, the piece we didn't like is we thought it went a little bit too far in moving away from our traditional structure of the game commission. Um, there are a few details that I, I'm probably not going to remember, but one being you could have a lot of commissioners from urban centers that could potentially be a little bit more disconnected from you know the rural ideologies that we feel really need to be represented on the game commission. And so it, it, it was a little too far of an evolution for us to feel comfortable in supporting it. Yeah. Um, and I do feel like this new game commission with the people that we have appointed um, – represents a really great step forward in how we're thinking about the game commission, how it's going to operate and how it's going to serve the average public land hunters of New Mexico. They, they also brought back the committee, right? The, um, Oh, the, the land office advisory committee. Yes. So, um, my understanding is the state land office, um, you know, previously, um, had a committee of, um, sportsmen and women to kind of advise them and it had been done away with and so Stephanie Garcia Richard um, revived that and so we have a pretty diverse group of people that are on the sports people's committee um, and our job is to just to help understand that intersection of the game and fish leasing for hunters and use of state land um, and just kind of have those conversations with the state land office about what we like to see change and so that, that brings back to a point that that you'd made earlier about the the big push in um transferring federal lands to states where where does the bha stand on that so bha feels very strongly that um all of our public land should be um held and managed by the federal government um the main argument being that if and when those lands get transferred to the state, we simply don't have a robust enough budget to maintain and keep them. And there's, you know, multiple incidents of um, states getting that land and selling it off. Um, you know, you can go to the Utah Sitla Land Sales website and see, you know, hundreds of acres up for right. sale. And the idea with our state lands is that they raise money for education. Well, that's great. But once that the lands are out of federal hands, there is no guarantee that we're going to keep it. And we think a core piece of being an American is our public land's birthright. And the best way to maintain that experience for future generations is to leave it managed at the federal level. We understand it's not perfect, but it's the best way to keep it there. Yeah, yeah. it's. I'm glad to hear you say that because I've had this conversation with many, many people who, and, and we've tried very hard on this podcast to get people to understand the difference in the land status types here in New Mexico and the ramifications of that. Because I've, you know, I've had a good friend who said, oh, yeah, we absolutely need to do that. And I had to explain to her, state trust lands are not true public lands. We no, lease those rights. They're private for all intents and purposes. They're private land. The money goes to the public. Money goes to the public schools. But they're not public lands, and you can't go out there anytime that you want to. And so, you know... Uh, I think it's really important to educate people about that because if you look at that movement on a whole, it's romanticized, 
and they tend to gloss over those dirty little bits of um, or don't know the the facts that uh, every four years you could get a new state land commissioner it's one person in in charge of the entire uh, Mm -hmm. system and they can do what they want to with it yeah yeah it's 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 very scary good good to hear good to hear that uh, bha we're on the same page on that one right well i think that we are on a lot lot i I think the main thing that we're on the same page the main thing that we're on the same page with the bha um is conversation it just has to be had because uh, you're you're absolutely right the the systems all of them can always be improved always there's there's even, even the good systems can be improved and the bad ones need to be improved um, and it takes that conversation and it takes that cooperation between all entities to make that happen um, and so uh, I think that the BHA does a good job in that in bringing bringing those topics to light. I don't agree with 100% of what the BHA does, but the best way to remedy that is to become a member and speak my voice. <laughs> um, and and uh, I think I'm probably going to do that for sure, but but uh, we are thankful to have the BHA around to do work, help educate the people, uh, and protect our public lands yeah and i'll just make a point there i mean a lot of the species specific organizations are phenomenal i'm a member of many of them um bha is a little harder to pin down because we deal with big hairy issues and you know different issues across all of our um, regions and there's so much value in that i am confident every day when i go to work that i know i'm working for the an organization i believe is doing the most to um be a conversation leader and to drive drive the future forward yeah. in terms of all of these really hard issues that you know we could just go on doing what we're doing as hunters and turn a blind eye and you can live the rest of your life without hearing about one game commission meeting or one policy yeah. change but if you do that you have to think about how divisive the world is becoming and what you're going to be leaving for your kids because yeah. you know Hunters typically are not as well educated on these nope. issues or as well funded as the non-hunting community. Yeah. And so unless we all tune in and, you know, join an organization that's willing to kind of walk through the fire every day, we're not going to make any progress and we may not even have our hunting heritage in a hundred years. You're and so, right. you know, there are things that people push back on and I'm always willing to learn and hear what they have to say. But to me, BHA is the one organization doing the most for the future of hunting and public land access. Yeah. And I, I think I'm going to disagree with you on on one thing there. And it's just, a, it's a semantic, so I'm giving you a hard time about it. So don't, don't feel bad. But uh, I actually think that hunters are as educated. We just don't do a good job of articulating our side of it. You know, I think um, we have the facts behind us. Uh, Some of us. I'm not going to, but as a whole, you talk to a hunter and they understand conservation. When you look at the other side that that are anti, like hardcore anti, they rely on emotion. They don't rely on facts. And that is evident. Any any, uh, legislative session that you've gone to... um, you look at that side and they will have most of their argument is based on feeling and sure. what you know so um i agree with the, you 100 i was referring more to i guess the process of yeah. making yes change. I, and I, I agree with you on that one. yeah but you're exactly right and i mean 
that's a scary opponent to have, one that listens to no reason mm-hmm. and has... And has no, uh, no unlimited time to do it and <laughs> right. the money to do it. You're exactly right. Yeah, yeah. but I, I'm with you. I, I think, like you were mentioning about the E-plus meetings where no, um, no, hunter showed no hunters showed up. We are not showing up. No, and we're not. Bitch and moan on Facebook all yes. day after the manner and methods rules are published. Yes. But I can tell you all during those meetings, there Nothing. was barely anyone. Crickets. There. And I know it's not fun, right? We all love hunting and the thrill of the hunt and everything, but reading um, you know, a BHA update on a certain policy item is boring and it can be boring. But I would just argue that um, it is imperative that anyone that enjoys hunting tune in to protect it because yes. if not, my personal opinion is like you're just being really selfish. And it can take people yep. a long time to get there. I was 27 and then I realized I love this. Why am I not protecting it? And you don't understand the constant attacks and constant threats to it until you're in this world. Yeah. So I know that I'm telling people, hey, get off your butts, pay attention. And it's not as timely to them because they're not seeing every day there are things that are threatening our way of yeah. life. Well, and, and we, we've learned so much. Yeah, we tend to get complacent uh, on, on where we're at. Um, we talk a lot about the fact that as hunter, hunters as a whole, we, we tend to be extremely secretive and we don't want to tell people anything. We have got to get better at uniting yes. over common issues and standing mm-hmm. and showing up. That's exactly yeah. what it is. You have to show up. And I would say, you know, we always talk about these R3 movements and the importance of bringing new people into the fold. Um, that's great. Where I see BHA as providing a huge service is being um, kind of the ethical spirit guide for all of those new people, right? right. So we can bring a ton of million new hunters in, and what is that group of hunters going to look like? Are they going to just want to hunt and they don't care about how we use the resource or ethics? Or do we want to, you know, be that voice for them? I've had my dad my whole life. A lot of people don't have that. And so I just think that's a critical point on R3 is when we bring in new hunters, we want them to be advocates and we want them to be ethical. And we want them to start showing up at game commission meetings so that we can steer, you know, the future of hunting here in New Mexico. Something that we're pushing hard with our Hunt It Forward candidates. Um, Katie, thank you so much for being here. Um, I'm glad we finally got together and got this done. Uh, We are out of time, so we're going to have to call it now. We could sit here and talk for three more hours, easy, uh, about all of this stuff. But we're going to have to sign off for now. Uh, Again, thank you for joining. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. All right. Adios. Adios, guys. Thanks for joining Not A Grande Outdoors podcast. Come follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Don't forget about our website, www.notagrandeoutdoors.com. Adios. Adios.